Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Supplemental, The Heretics That Never Were, Gnosticism in Early Christianity. As we talk about the early church, some of you might be curious about the lack of discussion of one group that features very prominently in modern thought, the Gnostics. Now, the Gnostics first came into popular consciousness through the work of writers like Elaine Pagels, and most famously, the novelist Dan Brown in his famous book The Da Vinci Code, more faithful to Hollywood than it is to history. The Gnostics are often portrayed as a mysterious group of religious faithful who supposedly held on to a more mystical, perhaps more egalitarian form of Christianity that the early church labeled as heretical. So, you may wonder, where, Ben, are the Gnostics during our story? Well, they're gone. They are all gone. The people called Gnostics are pretty much out of history by the time Nicaea gets rolling. If there were any self-identified Gnostics in the 300s, their writings and identities have been completely lost to us. So, there's nothing to tell. Sorry. But there is a deeper reason as to why we aren't talking about the Gnostics as a whole on this podcast. And that is because the Gnostics never actually existed at all. Let me explain what I mean by that. I don't mean that the people who are called Gnostic never existed, as if it was all just some kind of ancient deepfake operation. What I mean is that most authors, both popular and scholarly, talk about Gnosticism like it is one defined, secretive organization in which all the members are linked with each other and share common doctrines and purposes, kind of treating the Gnostics like an ancient version of the Freemasons. And that is simply not what the word Gnostic meant. Gnosticism wasn't a denomination or a sect like Methodism or Presbyterianism. Gnostic was an adjective. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. So when you called somebody a Gnostic in antiquity, that was just equivalent to calling them knowledgeable or wise. It didn't indicate they were part of one particular group. And... Just like calling someone a wise man is a compliment, but calling them a wise guy is most definitely not, so the term Gnostic was often either a compliment or an insult depending on who used it and for whom. I guess its closest modern equivalent is probably a word like evangelical or born-again Christian. Those terms have very different valences depending on who you are talking to. For example, being born again can mean to some people that you are a true Christian, one of those rare few who has a personal relationship with God instead of just showing up to church and going through the motions. And to other people, if you're a born-again Christian, that means you are a joyless retrograde theocrat who thinks The Handmaid's Tale is aspirational and probably spends your free time reading long blog posts about how the Muppets are satanic. The term means something both to people who apply it to themselves and to those who apply it to others. It often means quite different things, but it doesn't denote a concrete organization. There's no born-again denomination, and there's no big conference of born-again Christians where they all get together 
to get on board with the same agenda. Much the same is true of the Gnostics. Those groups of Christians called Gnostic didn't have any conferences or unified hierarchy. They may not have even known about each other, and they definitely didn't agree. The so-called Gnostics were actually several different religious traditions based around particular charismatic teachers. Some of those traditions include the Sethians, who traced their origins back to Seth, the third son of Adam after Cain and Abel, the Valentinians, the Basilideans, the Marcionites, and probably other groups that we can't categorize fully. Each of these groups had their own distinctive leaders, doctrines, and ethics. So how did they all come to be grouped together? Well, largely because the only way we knew about them was through the proto-Orthodox writers who criticized them. Before the discovery of the Nag Hammadi Codex in the 20th century, we had very few self-described Gnostic texts to go on. So we were mostly reading them, to their great annoyance, through the lens of their critics. Now these proto-Orthodox critics knew enough to specify which movement they were railing against. Marcion, or Valentinus, or Basilides, or whoever. But one of the things that they pointed out repeatedly was that these groups called themselves Gnostic. They claimed to have some kind of secret or special knowledge that the ordinary rubes couldn't obtain. Now, the Proto-Orthodox writers probably didn't think very much of this. They just thought it was pretty rich that these guys who called themselves wise and knowledgeable were actually totally wrong about most everything. In the modern era, when the study of late antiquity really got going, scholars saw that all of these groups were called Gnostic and misunderstood, thinking that the term referred to a unified group. And then popular novelists thought it would be cool if the mysterious Gnostics were linked to every other mysterious religious group in history, and if also Jesus had a wife for some reason, and if somehow this led to an antimatter bomb beneath the Vatican. Then, completely unbeknownst to popular novelists, Scholars realize that Gnosticism isn't a monolith, and may not be a helpful word at all to use to describe these different kinds of factions. Ah, popular culture, alas, hasn't caught up to this notion of disparate movements united more by their names than any actual familiarity. Perhaps someday it will, and instead of the Da Vinci Code, we'll get a Scott Pilgrim vs. the World-style film in which the plucky young protagonist wishes to become a catechumen, to win the heart of his Christian love interest, but first has to defeat her seven gnarly Gnostic nieces who have only recently formed a league at the behest of the chief heresiologist. So what did these many different systems actually believe? Well, it's hard to generalize, and since they don't really matter to the story of Nicaea, I'm not going to go into too much detail. But this is a supplemental, and there is some wild stuff here that is just too good not to talk about. Plus, it wouldn't do to have a podcast about ancient church history that didn't give you some information about these so-called Gnostics. So here we go. A short introduction to the basic themes that united these schools, but that each one of them also took up in their own distinctive way. The first thing to know about the Gnostic movements is that most of them contain more cosmic beings than the current Marvel Cinematic Universe. The highest god, who is completely transcendent and unknowable, and is usually given some cool name like Bithos, or Depth, or Silence, is just chilling in the depths of eternity, and begins to emanate groups of lesser divine beings, 
sort of the way that the sun emanates rays of light. Just by being there, it causes other things to exist. Now, these lesser divine beings are often given a cool name, like Aeon, and in most versions, they come in male-female pairs. Valentinianism asserted that there were 30 Aeons in total, which they knew because Jesus was 30 years old when he started preaching, and this apparently was symbolic of the 30 Aeons. Other Gnostic schools didn't bother numbering the Aeons, and Marcionism didn't talk about Aeons at all. The cool names associated with these beings were a source of complaint among the Proto-Orthodox. In what may be the funniest line in all of patristic literature, one Proto-Orthodox bishop starts replacing the mysterious names of the Aeons like Depth and Profundity with Pumpkin and Cucumber to show how the names don't actually mean anything. They're just put there to make the whole thing sound cool. Now, cool names or no, the highest god and all the lesser divinities were just chillin' in their spiritual, non-corporeal existence, having a grand old time. But then, something went very wrong. And that's how the material world was created. The details of what exactly went wrong vary from group to group, but usually the idea is that one of those lesser divinities got bored of contemplating the spiritual glory of the highest god, and decided to make something itself. This lesser divinity, who is often named Sophia, or the Demiurge, Demiurge is just the Greek word for worker, don't let it scare you, turned around and made the material world. The reason why there is so much evil in this material world is because it was made by a lesser god who isn't perfect, and in some schools is downright evil. Marcion, who we talked about in the main episode, is a particularly notorious case. He didn't have any aeons, but he did think that there was one second god who was evil, and who he identified with the god in the Old Testament called Jehovah. What is clear in all of these cases is that creation and matter are basically mistakes. The world is not very good, like it says in Genesis 1. The world in these systems is ambivalent at best. Now, if creation is evil then it stands to reason that salvation consists in escaping the material world and getting back to that big spiritual party with the highest God and all of the good aeons. That is where Jesus comes in. Jesus is an emissary of the highest God who sent him directly to earth to rescue us from this present life. Now, the fact that Jesus came to an imperfect, evil, material world in an apparently material body was a cause of substantial difficulty for many of these groups. Because if bodies are bad, or at least are a mistake, then why does the emissary of the ultimate good God have a body? They gave different answers to these questions. Many Gnostics, including Marcion and probably most of the Sethians, said that Jesus' physical body was an illusion. It only looked like Jesus was a regular person, but really he was manifesting as a sort of phantom, free from all the limitations and imperfections of actual bodies. Other schools of thought came up with more uh, creative solutions. Valentinus said, at least according to his critics, that Jesus had a body but it didn't experience corruption by, for example, pooping. It's unclear if there were other bodily acts the Valentinians didn't think Jesus did, but hopefully it included eating, unless they thought our Lord had the worst case of constipation 
known to history. Now, in whatever manner Jesus came to or appeared upon earth, his mission was mainly one of teaching people to know the one true God. This is the part of their doctrine where so-called Gnostics most closely resemble their proto-Orthodox counterparts. Consider, for example, John chapter 17, verse 3, where Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In other words, it seems like Jesus here is equating eternal life with a particular kind of knowledge. Some people will tell you that the Gnostics took faith completely out of the picture and thought that being saved was just a matter of knowing facts about God. Facts like you could learn from a textbook. That is almost certainly not right. For starters, the word gnosis usually connotes intuitive or religious knowledge. It's not just about rote memorization of facts. And what's more, this is another case where talking about the Gnostics is misleading. For example, Basiletus may have conceptualized salvation exclusively in terms of knowledge, Given the texts we have, he seems to be the one who pushes the farthest in that direction. But that doesn't mean any other teachers did. And we are certainly not entitled to put words in their mouths on the basis of what a different Gnostic said. Now, I referenced the Gospel of John just now as a place where Gnostic ideas might find some support. And indeed, many scholars have noted that John seems to have some Gnostic influences in it. This is another reason why it's not a great idea to draw firm distinctions between proto-Orthodox and Gnostic Christians. Even in Orthodox Christianity, there's some Gnostic flavor. But it's also true that Gnostic Christians often had their own scriptures that other Christians didn't share. And in keeping with the cinematic quality of Gnostic doctrine, many of these texts had super cool-sounding names and super cool-sounding plots. The Apocryphon of John, which came from Sethianism, in which Jesus appears to a grief-stricken John and cheers him up by explaining in great detail how each of the aeons emerged, is one such text. But my personal favorite is called The Thunder Perfect Mind, which is a later Coptic poem that has been found among groups of Gnostic texts, and it includes such banger lines as the following, and I quote, for it is I who am acquaintance, and lack of acquaintance. It is I who am reticence, and frankness. I am shameless, I am ashamed. I am strong, and I am afraid. It is I who am war, and peace. End quote. Now, what on earth does that mean? I don't know, man beats me, but it sure sounds cool. Now, there is some debate, I have to tell you, as to whether the Thunder Perfect Mind should really be classified as a Gnostic text or just as a text influenced by Gnostic movements. But in either case, it's clearly within the orbit of the movements we're talking about, so I've decided to include it here. It's important to remember that not all Gnostic groups shared the same text. In fact, those were pretty individual to each school. Each group had its own distinctive texts and practices. In fact, one of the main objections that proto-Orthodox communities raise against these Gnostic movements is the fact that they have all of these secret texts that no other communities had heard of instead of relying on the universal public scriptures known to the rest of the church, whose contents were summarized in, that's right, the rule of faith passed down through the bishops. 
The story of the biblical canon is one that will continue through the events of Nicaea, but for now, just know that at this point in history, when the Gnostics are around, sort of 100 and 200s AD, there is no top-down definition of what books are in the Bible. Each community uses its own set of scriptures based on convention, tradition, and reputation. Now, most communities are using the same basic set of books, but if a group wanted to add or remove a book from their Bible, well, nobody was really around to stop them. There is one more thing to know about these Gnostic movements, which is that a few of them thought that the vast majority of human beings were not redeemable. You see, in most of those Gnostic myths we described, human beings are born with a divine spark or a light that will respond to Jesus' teaching and see the truth. But not everyone is born with that spark. In some systems, only a few people have this kind of divine portion of themselves, and everybody else is the creation of that lesser God through and through, completely incapable of responding to Jesus' overtures. Now, not all so-called Gnostics see things this way, but some do. And you may compare this to, for example, the famous doctrine of double predestination. In this doctrine, God chooses, for some mysterious reason, to predestine some people to salvation and others to damnation without allowing them any free will in the matter. The key difference is that in double predestination, the choices are made on the basis of God's mysterious will, quite apart from anything about the human beings. In these branches of Gnosticism, the difference is something in the person, whether they possess that mysterious divine spark or not. By now, I hope you have gotten the idea that the groups of people labeled Gnostic are quite different from their popular preconception. For one thing, they weren't a unified homogenous entity. For another, the idea that Jesus would have had a wife and had sexual relations with her is uh, not one that most of the Gnostics would have been on board with. Sexuality, like the rest of the material world, was more often something to be escaped from, not celebrated. Of course, there are some exceptions. It's possible that some Gnostics thought, well, if bodies don't really matter either way, then we might as well have some fun while we're in them. But most Gnostics, as a whole, would have seen that as a distraction from the higher spiritual pursuits you really should be focusing on. And as a result, it is not at all clear that Gnosticism was more egalitarian in terms of gender roles than proto-Orthodox communities were. For example, the Gospel of Thomas, which is generally considered to at least have Gnostic influences, if not be a Gnostic text, includes the following story about Mary Magdalene. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, women can be saved as long as they become, you know, more manlike. And the Gospel of Thomas probably doesn't mean that figuratively. The idea of a woman making herself male is probably a reference to the fact that a woman can suppress her secondary sex characteristics with sufficient fasting. So this passage may be encouraging women to fast, possibly to the point of malnutrition, in order to make her body more like a man's. While some Gnostics may have symbolically elevated women by claiming that half the aeons were female, 
that did not mean that actual women's bodies were held in higher esteem. That is about as much as I can say about the various factions and religious groups called Gnostic. The other question you may be asking about them is, where did they go? Why did these so-called Gnostic groups die out while other types of Christianity flourished? The answer, as I bet you are getting tired of hearing by now, is this. We don't know for sure. The Gnostic trend lasted probably between 150 and 200 years, then faded away. It happened all the time. Lots of religious groups, Christian or not, rose and flourished and declined and died in the Roman Empire. Perhaps we need no more explanation than that. What we know for sure, though, is that Gnostic Christianity was not stamped out by its proto-Orthodox rivals. As I've said in the main episodes, Gnostic groups arose in a period before Christianity was even legal, let alone in power. Some Christian bishops didn't like it, sure, but all that meant was that their churches weren't allowed to read whatever hot Gnostic scriptures their friends were talking about. They certainly weren't burning books or even raising their voices in the town square about it, as that would often have invited persecution. In the end, Gnostic brands of Christianity probably failed for the same reason that most religious groups will eventually fail. They didn't convince enough people they were true. As times changed and the religious needs of people changed along with them, older generations of Gnostics died without new generations to replace them. And with them, the texts and controversies that kept their ideas alive eventually died out too. Yet it can't be denied that there is a certain fascination that these Gnostic authors present. And if you've enjoyed learning a bit more about them, or want to learn more, then you really need to thank the town of Nag Hammadi in Egypt. Egypt, as some of you might know, has a dry, arid climate perfect for preserving papyrus rolls. And in the year 1945, a team of archaeologists discovered a large library hidden away in Nag Hammadi that contained a whole bunch of texts, some labeled Gnostic and others not, that had otherwise been completely lost to history. We are still parsing through those texts, still trying to understand exactly what they mean. More discoveries and theories about these so-called Gnostics are available with every generation of scholars who takes a look at these exciting manuscripts again. But for now, this is where we must leave them a ragtag group of dissidents who, for all their powers of grandiloquence and loquacity, simply failed to persuade enough of the next generation to have much of a say in the controversies that occupy us in this podcast. This is the fate of the people called Gnostics, the first archetypal heretics of Christian history. Wild, strange, fascinating, deeply misunderstood. But ultimately, little more than a roadside curiosity along the road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.